0: This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, Washington Post columnist Philip Bump discusses his book, The Aftermath. He examines how baby boomers have impacted the U.S. economy and political system and how future generations will fare. He's interviewed by Millennial Action Project president, Leila Zayden. Philip,
1: congratulations on the publication of your book, I am so excited to discuss it today with you. Um, You and I are both really interested in the generational shift that is occurring in this country right now. At a time where so much of the focus seems to be on younger generations, what made you want to write something about boomers?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, to to your point, I've long been interested in the way in which generations are talked about in the United States. It it probably started back when I worked for the Atlantic Wire and was writing a piece, uh, you know, there every so often, every couple of years, there's one of these little brouhaha's in the media about what, what defines generations? Who's what generation? Yada, yada, yada. And one of those had occurred and I actually called the Census Bureau and talked to them. and They were like, look, the only generation we recognize is the baby boom because it has clear demographic markers that the other generations don't. So that sort of started me down this path of every time I'd start hearing about generations, I'd be like, well, generations aren't really real, so why do we use them and how do we use them and what is it about generational identity that actually serves as a useful descriptor for what's happening in American politics and culture? And so well, then that became the genesis of the book.
1: Mm-hmm. And so before we get too deep, tell us about how does generational identity get formed? And as you sure. did the research for, for this, how did you avoid overgeneralizing or stereotyping around what is often referred to as a monolith? And, and I think very much so is not a monolith.
0: Yeah, I mean, look, quite frankly, what I would do is I would make broad generalizations and then say it was generalization. I mean, it's hard not to do that, right? I mean, it's hard not to sort of say, look, here are some characteristics that this massive group of people has. Obviously, it doesn't apply to everyone, but, right, that's just sort of – there's not really any way to get around that unless you, you know start detailing the lives of – you know, however many tens of millions of people. Uh, So, you know, when we consider generations, as I said, the Census Bureau only looks at the baby boom as a defined generation because you can see this sharp spike in births that occurs in the immediate aftermath of World War II and then continues on for about the next 20 years. Otherwise, when we talk about generational identity, we're really just talking about age cohorts. We're talking about groups of people who are born in certain year periods, right? And that's useful. It's useful to us just sort of collectively to talk about culturally. We all know what it means when we contrast Gen X with Gen Z, for example, or when we talk about the silent generation as opposed to millennials. We understand those distinctions because it's easier than saying, you know, people born before World War II or, you know, people born in the last 30 years, right? Those are just easier ways of talking about it. But then, of course, there are also useful uh, uh, aspects of generations. Pollsters find it useful. Marketers find it useful. It is more useful to say, hey, this group of people shares this particular thing, and we've seen over the course of time that being born in certain, you know, within the span of a certain period does tend to lead to certain shared inclinations. Uh, that becomes useful for people who are doing analysis of what America is all about.
1: Mm-hmm. So what does it mean to be a boomer, and how is that different from what it means to be, for example, a millennial?
0: Sure. So, I mean, what it means is different than essentially how the generations are constituted, Mm. right? And so when we talk about how the generations are constituted, there's some really sharp and important distinctions between boomers and millennials, or more broadly between people of boomer age and older and people of millennial age and younger, Gen X, of which I'm a member sort of constantly being that forgotten middle child as as I'm about (laughs) to do here. Uh, But the baby boom itself, you know, consider that the baby boom emerged at a time in the United States when immigration was really at a low there had been a backlash to immigration from Europe in the early uh, part of the 20th century. There were still laws on the books even as the boom started preventing immigration or tamping down on immigration broadly. And so at the time when the baby boom started, immigration, the average immigrant was someone's grandparent, right? This was someone who had immigrated from Europe, you know, 20, 30 years prior. It was a whole different scenario. And then after the boom, immigration was relaxed again. Immigration laws were relaxed and so you got, started to get a lot more people from Asia, people from Mexico and Central America and that really changed what America looked like, you know, in a way that has become a really fundamental part of how we talk about American politics, which I'm sure we're going to get to uh, but, you know, it, it means that the baby boom really is much more white than younger generations, that, that younger generations literally look different than did the baby boom. At the same time younger generations continued the pattern that we saw really start with the baby boomers of being more likely to go to college and less likely otherwise to participate in institutions, being less beholden to political parties. The boom had a lot of aspects of that relative to their elders, but we've really seen that continue with younger generations. And so now we have younger generations much more highly educated than was the boom. They're much less likely to participate in institutions, much less religious, much less likely to be members of political parties. And all of those things are differentiators both culturally and politically from people who are members of the baby boom. Mm.
1: And so how did members of the baby boom generation potentially create this reality that my generation has been born into, right? Their impact on the workforce, on the economy, on culture itself. Sort of what did, uh, what do we have boomers to thank for? Yeah, I
0: mean, literally everything. I mean, modern America was built by the baby boom, right? And, you know, the way to think about it is, uh, first, I mean, we, we we're bad at understanding the scale of the baby boom, in part because all of us live in an America that was created by the baby boom. There are very few Americans who are still alive today who preceded or can even remember what life was like before the boom emerged. But consider that in 1945, there were about 140 million people in America total. Over the course of the next 20 years, about 74 million more people were born, right? So more than 50% of the total population in 1945 was born in the 20 years following that year, right? That's a massive shift. And so what you started to see is as the baby boom got older, you started to see a lot of things start to break. You started to see, for example, hey, look, all of a sudden, the diaper industry is this boom industry, right? Mm. You know, the bronzing shoes became this massive, massive uh, uh, business interest that, that made tons of money. And then very quickly that ended. You know, after the boom, then, those weren't lucrative <laughs> businesses anymore. And we saw that same pattern. The, the, the analogy that's often used is a snake swallowing a pig, right? That you start here and then the snake gets fat and then it gets thin again as the, as the pig passes. through. It's an extremely gross analogy, but I think it's an apt one. Um, and so we <laughs> see that happening as the boom is moving through through American culture and society. We You have to build a bunch of schools because the baby boomers are arriving. You have to start figuring out what you're going to do once they graduate from high school. Like, you know, w- where are the jobs for them? Maybe they should all start going to college. That's one of the spurs for why people start going to college. You have the Vietnam War, right? You have the, a lot of people being drafted into the military to go serve in Vietnam. There are all these aspects of, that are related to the, the scale of the boom. Mm-hmm. And then you also have – I know this is a long question or a long answer, but here we have it. Um, you also have the fact that the baby boom is helping to drive economics broadly, right? So they get to their teenage years. They've got a lot of disposable income. You have the emergence of television right at that moment. You have the emergence of things like, you know, the transistor radios and cars. These things all combine to create this massive cultural and economic force that's focused on the baby boomers. And my thesis is in part that over time the baby boomers got used to being that center of attention. And so now as that power is starting to go to younger generations, the baby boom is in the unusual position of being the ones out of power or with decreased attention paid to them. And I think that too is undergirding some of the tension we're seeing.
1: Mm. Well, I have to say, I appreciate you uh, calling the baby boomers the "me" generation because, as a millennial, I have been on the other end of sure. uh, receiving the "me, me, me" generation moniker. So I appreciate you pointing that at at others. And this metaphor, right of uh, the the snake that swallowed a pig, is is kind of gross, but very apt. Yeah. And I will say, you were very talented at at uh, dealing with metaphors in your book because you deal with something unpleasant but true, which is that as generations are born, so too must they perish. And, right. uh, you know, I've, I don't think I've ever met somebody who can talk about death with so many uh, metaphors and different ways of, of sort of talking <laughs>
0: about it. Smoothing it out.
1: sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And right. so, so tell us about, um, you know, in, in many ways sort of this cultural, economic power that boomers had that there's maybe one final act of, of power left in the boomers, um, you know, briefcase.
0: Yeah, right. So, yeah, I mean, the people who are most fine with talking about baby boomers dying as either baby boomers or people who do research on death, right? So I talk to them they're like, oh yeah, they're going to die, bubba. you know, I mean it's just it's, it's a little shocking because it's, you know outside of our cultural norm in terms of how we talk about it but yes, baby boomers are getting older right, right now they're in their mid-50s to mid-70s uh, they're, they're aging uh, baby boomers are increasingly, they make up most of the re- retiree population at this point, uh, they are increasingly making up more of the number of people of Americans who are dying each year but that said most, you know, there's still a large chunk of baby boomers are in their mid-50s, right? The baby boom is going to be around for decades to come. And so there are a lot of questions about what happens. So, yeah, if we think about it with the, the pig going through the snake or the going through the python to be more alliterative, you know, eventually you get to the end of the snake, right? But you're still seeing that swelling at the end of the, sna- of the snake. And so I spoke, for example, with a woman who's involved in the senior housing industry, and they're just, like, stoked. You know, I mean, they've been waiting since the mid-1940s for it to be <laughs> their turn to reach their end of the python. They're finally here. Although, it's interesting to note, Senior housing is really aimed at people even still older than the boomers. So they haven't even gotten to that. You know, the pig's just starting to approach them. But there are all these factors, all these end-of-life decisions, all these factors that come into play when you're talking about elderly people that are now starting to apply to the baby boom. So, for example, medical costs, right? Care care of of, uh, elderly people. Uh, The the fact that America is going to be much older in the immediate future than it has been in the past also means that there aren't going to be as many people paying into government programs that are needed to help take care of the elderly, right? So so there's going to be this new additional strain by this massive generation finally reaching the age at which they start to retire and, you know, start looking towards end of life. And it's really not even clear how America's going to be able to adapt to that given the patterns that we've seen.
1: Mm. And so, you know, I think that's such an interesting point and one that was very salient uh, as we think about the concerns that everyday Americans have today. is Mm. the economy, jobs and uh, their financial futures and knowing that we are in store for potentially quite a large uh, disruption in the workforce over the next uh, couple decades where do you see some of the uh, opportunities for our country or for folks who are in charge of making these big decisions to really prepare ourselves for uh, this oncoming reality
0: yeah, I mean, we're already starting to see baby boomers become a declining portion of the workforce, right? I mean, they're, they're retiring. This is what happens. Yeah, I mean, this is this is very much receivable. But I mean, I think to some extent, I mean, obviously, there are a lot of the, the economic picture of the course of the past two years in the wake of the pandemic has been extremely complicated. That's certainly true. But absolutely one aspect of the search for trying to find people to fill jobs is that you have more people retiring. So the people with whom I spoke, one of the things they pointed at was we need to figure out how we're going to bring more people into the country. Right? We simply need to either uh, – either we need to substantially contract the economy or we need to bring more people in to do those jobs. The birth rate's not doing it. The American birth rate has been fairly stagnant and declining over the course of uh, the past several decades. Uh, I shouldn't say that long. I, I'm sort of doing it off the cuff. But it's been <laughs> declining over the, the, over the short term. Uh, and so when you speak with sociologists, when you speak with demographers, one thing they say is we need to figure out immigration. We need, to have, we, need to, we need to have a way. If we're going to have a society that looks like what it looks like now, that has people who are filling particularly the service sector jobs that are going to be increasingly left open, we need to figure that out. And one of the things they point out is immigration.
1: Yeah. And so you mentioned in the book, I'm going to read a quote here, the political choices that the boomer voters make will be more consequential for the direction of the country than their own financial investment and consumption behavior. And so for all of their participation in our economy and the workforce, you see their politics as actually one of the more significant contributing factors to American society. Uh, Why is that? Why do you see that?
0: Well, there are two reasons, really. The first is that when we talk about how the baby boom has approached power as it's gotten older, is there have been a lot of examples of baby boomers sort of, uh, uh, building up barriers around their own power, and when I say power, I'm using power in a very broad sense. I'm not just talking about you know ha- holding the gavel in the House of Representatives. I'm talking about you know home ownership. I'm talking about things like uh, uh, investments. Right there, there are all these ways in which power is manifested in this massive group of people. It's really important, of course, to have the caveat that I'm not saying that all baby boomers are rich. Baby boomers have a lot of aggregated wealth, but that's because there are so many boomers. You know, on a per person basis, the boomers are no wealthier than any other generation. But because there's such a massive generation, they hold much more wealth and they have held much more political power and they've managed to to uh, make changes to preserve power in a way uh, that reflects the fact that they just simply have so many more people who are interested in doing so. Uh, so you have that issue. You have the issue of baby boomers who are trying to preserve power. Um, but you know, more broadly, you also simply have this, this increasing challenge between the boomers and younger generations over what power looks like. If baby boomers choose at this point in time, while well, they still have power, to either side with millennials, side with younger generations, or unilaterally in places where they have the ability to do so, to do things that change what American politics looks like, what American economics looks like, to increase, for example, the supply of housing. There are all these choices that can be made while they have power that then reshape what the future, both immediate and longer term, look like should they choose to do so. And that's that's the point of what I was saying there.
1: Mm, yeah. So, and we recently saw uh, House Democratic leadership actually decline in age by a collective 93 years right. uh, with, you know... Um, uh, former Speaker Pelosi uh, passing the gavel to, or passing the um, the title leadership. to to, to Rep. Hakeem Jeffries sure. and the other three, and so that kind of of jump, right? Ninety three years, almost a century uh, younger in in leadership. What does that do for the potential future of of Congress, the potential future of policymaking?
0: Yeah, no, that was a really fascinating. And you know what was, what was additionally fascinating about that moment was that. The conversation prior to that happening was really focused on generational change, right? There was a lot of conversation within the Democratic Party, even when Joe Biden was running for president in 2020, we need to have generational change and better reflect younger America. And in part, that's because Democrats are more likely to be young than our Republicans, right? And this is a whole different aspect of the overlap of younger America and Democrats, which I'm sure we'll talk about. Uh, but yes, we saw this broad conversation about the need for generational change. And one of the other things that you see, too, is that when you track the age of Congress over time, basically from when the baby boomers got to the age when they could first start serving in the house, you saw the average age of Congress sort of rise with the boom. And just now, for the first time, you start to see it start to dip back down. You're starting to see boomers lose uh, hold of that power, which... Again, of course, is you know part of the the part of the genesis of the book itself. Uh, so yeah, that was a really fascinating change, and I think it really reflects that the Democratic Party recognizes that it is dependent upon younger Americans. Younger being a relative term here, you know, fifteen under, for example, uh, for their future uh, future success.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love that stat, and my organization, Millennial Action Project, actually recently tracked uh, an increase in the number of young people running for yeah. Congress, an increase of. Uh, 57% this year, we've got 91 millennials and one general Zer uh, being sworn in, having just been sworn in to, to Congress. And so we are starting to see sort of a, an uptick in the number of, of young people. Um, one of the arguments that, that you make in the book is how the uh, shifting demographics of our country – have actually contributed to this current moment that we're in of, of toxic political polarization, sort of the role that, that boomers and now the rising impact of uh, millennials and Gen Z have on sort of that reality of the polarization that we're living in. Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
0: Yeah, I think it's really important to understand that when we're talking about America and contrasting generations like the baby boom with younger generations, we're really talking about two different demographic groups of people, right? To the point that I made at the outset, the baby boom was much more uh, heterogeneous – or much more homogenous – yeah, I'm stumbling over the word. Much more homogeneously <laughs> white, much mm. more thoroughly white than younger generations, in part because of immigration patterns and in part just simply because of what, what America looked like at the point in time. And that's changed over time. And so you have this younger group of voters that's much more black and African, uh, black and Asian and Hispanic in particular uh, than was the older generation. And so when we, it's very hard to extricate race and age to a large extent because we know that black americans and hispanic americans and asian americans all vote much more heavily democratic than do white americans and that holds too uh, at lower age levels and so when we talk about what the future of american politics looks like when we talk about some of this tension when we talk about the reaction to barack obama being elected president you know that was that were, the reaction was theoretically when we talk about something like the tea party theoretically predicated on taxation. In reality, when you talk to researchers, the people with whom they spoke, or uh, the Tea Partiers were frustrated about where their tax dollars were going. It was going to things like paying for immigrants coming to the country or paying for welfare programs, right? And those, of course, are intertwined with issues of race. You also hear when you speak with the researchers who look at this that one of the frustrations was that Barack Obama was so appealing to younger Americans and that you had all these grandparents who were frustrated. Baby boomers were frustrated. Like, how can my kids vote for the socialist, which is how he was viewed in you know, portrayed on Fox News. And so you really saw 2008 as being a point at which the generational tension came into sharp relief. It really saw the first big gap in old and young in terms of how they voted. And that was absolutely intertwined with race and was absolutely intertwined with age uh, in a way that's continued to this day.
1: And those kinds of phenomena tend to be uh, much more visible, at least on the Democratic side of the aisle. Do you see, as, you know, you write about the political influence of boomers... Uh, being very visible on the right, do you see the future of the GOP adapting to, uh, what did you say, the, f- the fading of the boomer generation uh, to replace that with younger voters?
0: Yeah, I mean, this was the idea after 2012, right? That the, the the Republican Party came into the 2012 presidential race thinking, okay, we got this. Mitt Romney's going to edge out Barack Obama. Finally, we're going to get things back on track. And then, to their surprise, the Mitt Romney lost. And so they engaged in this this uh, in the in the wake of that election, uh, they engaged in this what came to be known as the autopsy, in which they got a bunch of senior officials within the Republican Party, they sat down, they did research, they looked at demographic trends, they looked at what was happening, and they put together a set of recommendations, included among which was, we need to do a better job of reaching out to non-white Americans. The problem was, for the Republican Party, that by the time that report came out, you know, in the the aftermath of the 2012 election, you had two things happen in 2014 that reshaped the political narrative. The first was this uh, surge in unaccompanied minors at the southern border, uh, young people coming from Mexico and Central America, uh, predominantly actually Central America, coming to the United States and causing a crisis uh, for the Obama administration but also a massive backlash on the right. And then you also had the emergence of Black Lives Matter, which really drew attention to the saliency of of, uh, interactions between black people and police. And so both of those things helped trigger the rise of Donald Trump. And Donald Trump came out of the gates. You know, the first thing he said, essentially, when he announced his candidacy in 2015 is he spoke out against immigrants and spoke out against immigration. Uh, And he really showed that while the autopsy of the GOP after 2012 had said, hey, we need to figure out a new path forward and, and reach out to people, Donald Trump showed, well, actually, we can still wring a lot of political power out of really quadrupling down on our appeal to, um, you know, often xenophobic white America. And that's what Donald Trump did over the course of the next, what's it been now, you know, seven years. That said... Yes. Over the course of the long term, I think we've seen some softening of the Republican Party's positions on things like LGBTQ issues with obvious, you know, asterisks that apply there and on things like climate change relative to where they were 15, 20 years ago. The GOP position is softer on those things than it used to be, even if it's not necessarily where it wants to be. And I think that is in part a reaction to the electorate broadly driven by younger Americans uh, showing that their past positions were simply unacceptable. Mm.
1: In a lot of the ways in which it's difficult to talk about a generation without overgeneralizing, uh, it can be hard to talk about politics at just the national level, right? And so, as we think about, you know, some of what you write in your book about the importance of state and local politics, what's happening sort of in our neighborhoods and our communities, um, where do you see some of the generational impact of boomers sort of uh, paving the way for what the future looks like for? Uh, civic engagement or democracy really starting at the local level.
0: Yeah, I mean it's really hard when we when we talk about that not to talk about something like housing, right? So. I think everyone who's under a certain age recognizes that the housing process in the United States is a challenge, that, you know, that it is hard to afford a house, that it is hard to find access to a house, uh, you know, that, that the the perceived path, which isn't necessarily always accurate, the perceived path that existed 70 years ago in which you sort of had a good job and you worked at the job and you could afford a house and you could have a family and, you know, that, that path. Forward, which wasn't always as, as you know smooth as we'd like to think it was, is very hard to accomplish today, and that's true. And that's in part because of, as we talked about, the baby boomers sort of saying, "Okay, well, we own houses. Let's do what we can to protect our housing value," which is in part it's worth noting. Because a lot of boomers anticipate using their houses as retirement income, selling their houses when they get older. And so they're trying to protect the value of it now. But building these walls around home ownership. And so you look at the systems that are designed to actually make home ownership easier, right? And so what happens when you want to build a new house in most places in the country? You have to go through a review process. And there's some fascinating research that's cited in the book where they actually went and looked to see who is participating in those review processes. And the people who are participating – are homeowners and so they even looked to see you know what happened when uh when the pandemic hit and you know it wasn't as though you had to be a retiree sitting at home who had the time to go and do this you can just call in from home and participate in the review process it was still mostly homeowners and so those people are driving where new houses get built driving the objections to them. Uh, And that's an example of a place where home ownership, which is heavily, you know, much more heavily uh, happening among boomers than among younger generations, helps drive local politics, right? And so I think part of it, obviously, is to your point earlier, simply engagement, getting engaged in local politics, understanding what happens with local politics. But I do think there needs to be some changes in the system. There need to be changes in the ways that we approach things, uh, like zoning, which is obviously this massive national movement looking at it. Uh, But there do need to be changes along those lines for there be something affected uh, that will actually benefit people who are younger
1: right and, and I think you know you talk about zoning and most people's eyes maybe start to glaze over it's not zoning, the you sure. know the sexiest issue to sure. to get engaged around but your point is uh, that we need to prioritize issues that are reflective of those generations who are coming into power who are becoming yeah. um, you know the dominant uh, generation in the country and so perhaps of making sure that uh, as young people experience these, these problems, there's folks in positions of uh, political power who can actually prioritize and, and debate and engage on, on the topics that matter to um, a, th- a new generation.
0: Yeah, but this is, this is a great point, which is that part of the reason the baby boom has so much power now and will continue to have so much power over the course of the next 10, 20 years is that they vote more heavily right? It's not complicated, right? And everyone says this. You say it all the time, right? I'm sure you've had this conversation a thousand times. If young people voted more, you would have more of a stake and more of a say in what's happening. You know, the, 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 between that and the fact that uh, that over the course of time, it is more likely that white Americans will continue to be citizens as opposed to non white Americans, uh, the higher percentage of them. So, so, when we talk about things like the demographic shift that a lot of white Americans are freaked out about, that Americans will become majority minority, that's actually not going to happen in terms of representation and political power simply because of those differences in citizenship. And that, again, comes down to voting. More mm-hmm. Americans vote. If you have that power to vote, the more you do so, the more power you get. Mm-hmm.
1: It's almost a chicken and an egg problem because faith sure. in our institutions has declined, and of course, that faith is what inspires somebody sure. to show up to, um, you know, a political primary in the yeah. first place. And so, uh, where do you see some of the sort of realities that millennials and Gen Zers have grown up with—the uh, partisan gridlock, for example—sort of factoring into how we decide to flex our, our generational power and? Um, what that looks like in terms of politics, but also in terms of, you know, other ways of of shaping what our society looks like?
0: It's a great question. You know, there are a lot of people who spend a lot more time and who are much brighter than me who have tried to focus on how you get younger people engaged, right? Particularly given the fact that, as we've said, younger people tend to be less reliant on institutional Mm -hmm. participation. Are more likely to say, for example, that they're political independents than they are members of political parties, even if they end up voting uh, more heavily Democratic. So, I, how do you how do you rebuild that faith in institutions? I think part of it is simply having honest conversations with folks. Uh, I'll admit, I don't I don't know what that is. I think it's very difficult in this moment because we have this very polarized media um, economy. Not that the media is all powerful, but you have these two media universes that are talking against each other. One of which uh, I like to think is more reality focused than the other, uh, but it's just difficult. It's difficult Difficult When there's so much uh, to be wrung from having an anti-institutional and often dishonest approach to American politics, a, a, an approach that is really based on division, there's a lot to be gained from that. You know, as we saw with, with the rise of Donald Trump, who obviously was not known for, for his honesty or his, his, you know, his, his efforts to build a big tent. Um, and so I don't know what that looks like. And maybe what it looks like is we just slowly, very, sim- you know, over the course of time, we very slowly watch our politics change and people regain their confidence in it. Uh, but I don't think there's a short term solution.
1: Mm. So you raised some pretty serious concerns. You're like the Paul Revere of the, the boomers are, are passing away. Pay attention. Uh, you raised some pretty serious concerns about what 's to come. Um, are there sort of positives that you see or opportunities that you see over the coming decades um, that that you want to highlight? I think that we
0: have a lot of opportunities in the moment to recognize where we are and what America uh, is doing and what America looks like right and you know I think one of the things one of the central themes of the book really is the overlap of age and race and that is because I really believe that a lot of the tension that exists in the moment is foundationally rooted in concerns about immigration and race in particular. And so there's an entire chapter of the book, as you know, that looks at, for example, the extent to which projections that America will become majority-minority are accurate. And it's rooted in – you know the Census Bureau is a really great institution I, and I rush to say that because I think they do great work. But they are bounded by the data they collect, and they've tried to make it so that they can uh, collect a better and uh, more, more complex set of data around race in the United States. They have at times been hampered by that, including during the Trump administration. But so, for example, the Census Bureau's projections, the last time they did so was in 2017, they project a certain percentage of America who will be Hispanic uh, you know, up until 2060 or so. Those projections are based on assumptions about Hispanic American self-identification over time. And one of the things that other research has shown is that Hispanic Americans are less likely to identify Hispanic in future generations as they are longer – as they've been in the United States longer. Uh, and so, you know, things like that, we are – There was a lot of discussion about when America becomes majority-minority that is rooted in assumptions about how people identify their own race that may not hold up. The other aspect of it is the Census Bureau made this really fascinating change between 2010 and 2020 about the amount of information they allowed people to submit to describe their own racial background. And so, for example, you can describe your background as, you know, I'm white, but I also had relatives come from Africa and I'm also part Portuguese. And, you know, in the past, that would have been truncated to white or white and some some African heritage, right? Now they allow you to provide a lot more information that they then have to hand code, essentially. And that led to this big surge, this big surge between 2010 and 2020 in the, of, in the uh, percentage of people who said – that they were white and some other race. And that we hadn't seen that big jump before. And it was largely a function of how the Census Bureau recorded it. And so to some extent, you can look at the America as already being much less uh, solidly white than we have perceived it as being. That this change has already happened to some extent. Uh, and I think that the because it's so important how we talk about demographic change in terms of the response we get politically, I think it's important to recognize the nuances here. Mm-hmm. That was a very long answer and I hope it was – I hope it actually made sense for viewers.
1: I th- yeah, I think that's uh, an important topic to, to sort of spend a, a few moments on because the changing racial demographics of this country are uh, it's so important to acknowledge they are going to impact every facet of our society. And as somebody who runs an organization of millennials and, and Gen Zers, it's something that I think is a, is a priority to our generation to, to really acknowledge in a way that um, – you know, to go back to the beginning of our conversation is full of the complexity and nuance that uh, a topic as big as race, uh, you know, deserves. It's not that all people of one certain racial uh, sure, right. makeup are, you know, all vote the same, I'll believe the same thing, I'll earn right. the same amount um, of money. And so I, I do think that um, sort of to, to your point of the diversifying nature of our country, creating these um, uh, really helpful fracture points or, or um, uh, diversification opportunities and how we think about what our society has been organized around how we do things what what is um, sort of the, the the status quo having an introduction of, of new faces new new um, centers of power I think that's an, a really important um, thing to, to discuss and I, I just want to you know commend you for for focusing so heavily on it in the book because um, it's it's impossible to talk about the future without. Sort of underlining the impact that race is going to have on on um, on our country.
0: Yeah, I mean, and, and I, I, there's another aspect here too that that your 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 remarks made me think of, which I think is worth highlighting. So we talked a little bit about how the election of Barack Obama 2008 it really you know. It, it for a, a certain group of Americans really exacerbated a sense of concern they had about what was happening in the country. But yet something else happened at that time which you obviously, as, as someone who does a lot of work with millennials and younger generations, knows is that social media emerged. And social mm-hmm. media really gave individual Americans an opportunity to be heard and seen by other Americans in a way that didn't exist previously. You know, the, I, I quote a PR rep in the book who talks about how you, know, you can be sitting in your bedroom in Cleveland and get a million followers overnight, right? And that can happen. And all of a sudden, not only is it the case that you know we the baby boomers and other Americans who are concerned about these things, and not all baby boomers are, to your point, but all of a sudden, not only are they generally concerned about what's happening with the United States and, and you know, the, the decline of white America, even if they're concerned about it, uh, not explicitly, but implicitly, then all of a sudden, you start seeing the really, really uh, prominent voices of particularly non-white Americans that that are being elevated, and young Americans who may be non-white, and that that you that would in the past not have been able to be seen, would not have actually had as as prominent a platform in American culture. Uh, now, just being able to do so and being very present, and you have things like Okay, Boomer, which is the millennials using <laughs> social media to have a very direct, like you know, the hell with you guys thing, which you know in the, in, in generational battles are not new but in the past you couldn't simply make a viral song <laughs> that blasted the older generation right so these are new aspects of it as well that i think are worth
1: mm-hmm. remarking on. another topic that you focus on uh in addition to 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 race is education and how yeah. younger generations look a lot different in their educational makeup than than boomers did tell us a little bit about your your research there
0: yeah, so essentially the the line has looked like this: when you when you start from the Silent Generation through the Baby Boom into Gen X and into Millennials, the density of college education in those groups has steadily increased. So Boomers were much more better educated than. Much more better educated, <laughs> not, not not reflecting well on the subject at hand. Classic uh, Gen much, Xer. <laughs> right, we're much better educated than their parents. Gen Xers were better educated than their parents. Millennials better educated than their parents, right? And so one of the things that we see is we see this confounding of education with other issues like race and like living in cities and all these other aspects, which also overlap with uh, democratic politics. But it's very clear that better educated Americans, particularly more recently, uh, have been more likely to vote Democratic. So it has this effect on politics. But it also appears to be the case that people who have gone to college, who have gone through that experience, have a broader sense of acceptance of culture, of different people, of different scenarios, right? Some of it certainly inculcated in the classroom. Some of it, of course, just by virtue of the experience. Uh, and so we see that as really being something that can be determinant. if you're trying to identify how people, uh, you know, the people's worldviews or politics. College education can be very effective in that. So we see College-educated young people voting very much like college-educated older people, even members of the baby boom, because they have that thing in common. It's just that there are so many more college-educated millennials and Gen Zers uh, as a proportion of those generations uh, than was the case with the boomers.
1: Mm. Yeah, and so that makes me think, you know, we focused a lot on the differences between the generations. Are there any notable similarities that, that you pulled out or that are worth uh, highlighting as we think about what the next few decades looks like.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think it's really important. To to your first point, the first point you raised here, that the the boom is not one solid mass, right? That there are a lot of baby boomers who don't reflect any of the things that we've been talking about. If you look at the backlash to Donald Trump's presidency, the resistance movement, who was that led by? It was led by older women with college degrees, right? It was led by boomer women uh, because that's the boom itself is is not something that is, is homogeneous, right? You have all these different elements to it. And so I think that you have a lot of baby boomers who've been exercising their political power in ways that actually reflect what millennials and Gen Zers want to see, that actually are voting along the lines of, of what younger generations would want, right? And so when we talk, for example, about how what the future looks like is dependent to some extent upon the decisions we make now. Boomers hold a lot of power. Boomers are helping to make those decisions, and they are not always doing it in a way that is solipsistic or selfish, in in a, in a way that people can sort of assume. The boom is a very big generation; has a lot of different elements to it, uh, and is you know, I, I think that there is a point of allegiance that can be raised there as well.
1: Mm, yeah, and we do tend to talk about generational warfare, and and much sure. less frequently about generational cooperation. Right. Uh, do you see millennials as standing to inherit? The economic boom that the that the boomers really were were at the vanguard of, of creating is going yeah, mean, to skip this, over us.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, this is this is a this is a, an important question, right? Is what happens with that wealth that's been accrued by the boomers again? On a per capita basis, boomers are not particularly wealthy relative to other generations, right? It is simply that there are so many of them they have this wealth. Uh, but you know, I spoke with experts, financial experts, who estimate that you know we're talking trillions of dollars in to change hands already in 2022. They anticipated that, or they expected about two trillion dollars was transferred from boomers to either other generations or to institutions. You know, and that's not all you die and then you you have an inheritance. It is things like investing in college education or buying houses for young people, right? There are all these ways in which that manifests. And so it's not really clear. And part of the reason it's not clear is it's not clear how long baby boomers are going to live. The longer you live, the more likely you are to have to pay for things like you know advanced medical care and senior housing, and that's going to draw down the amount of money you have. A lot of a lot of seniors are on fixed incomes uh, from Social Security and things along those lines. And it's not clear if they live longer, how that affects both the social security system broadly and their own finances. Uh, So we're we're not really sure. We know that the money will be going somewhere. It necessarily must, but it may be going to healthcare facilities, right? I'm sure a large chunk of it will. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I think that's that's an open question and and one that I think is largely unresolved. There's another fascinating point that I uncovered as I was writing the book. A lot of older people have college debt. You know, some mm-hmm. of it their own, but some of it on behalf of younger people as well. And so those are things also that are going to tap into the wealth of the baby boom has.
1: Yeah. And are these issues that you see being resolved by public policy? Is it something that we need to be asking politicians to really focus on now? Or is it, do you think, something that is just part of the natural process of, of age and time and what, where the cards fall is where they fall? Um, What is the best way to prepare ourselves for for sort of this transfer and uh, what do folks need to be doing now to, to help smooth out that transition?
0: Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right. A lot of this is simply just the nature of people getting older. But again, the baby boom is exceptional. We're having more people getting older now than we've seen at any point in the past, uh, and that's going to change how these things work. And so, one of the one of the things that emerged as I was talking to experts for the book is that there has always been this tension between what sorts of investments uh, we are making in ourselves, right? So. For example, let's say we have a fixed pool of dollars. Should we put more of those dollars towards senior housing, recognizing people are getting older, or should we continue to put it toward education of young people because we need to make sure that young people have good educations? What's the balance that's drawn there, and who's making the decisions about that? So this then gets into the who's voting more question, right? Mm-hmm. You know, If baby boomers are voting more and they're more worried about having financial support for senior housing, you're going to have a lot more investment in senior housing. You know, it, again, in keeping with the the Python swallowing the pig uh, metaphor, there uh, that you're going to see start start seeing more of a focus on that sort of spending potentially, unless we make different decisions. So yes, there is that element of tension, but because the boom is so big, once again, it's breaking that standard interaction, and we really do have to start making decisions about how we're uh, applying public resources and which groups we're applying them to, and how and when.
1: Mm-hmm. And one argument I would make is that having more young people in elected office can really help to bridge sort of where we're at to where we want to be in, in terms of just elevating the types of issues that, that matter to future generations, right. maybe operating from less of a short-term uh, solution and more of a long-term solution, knowing that the decisions that I, as a young policymaker, might make are things that I'm going to live to see sure. the consequences of, um, and so, you know, as we as we set up a generation of, of lawmakers to focus on um, some of the issues that that you see as critical to, to uh, backfilling uh, potentially some of the holes that the baby boomers might leave when uh, when they when they fade, um, I'm going to need to look at your sort of lexicon of, of <laughs> polite ways That's to fair. say pass away. As um,
0: long as you try, I think you
1: get credit for it. But, but are there uh, recommendations that you would have, sort of solutions that you think are really important to focus on now in order to set up long term um, sort of preparations for our country and for sort of the rising generations?
0: Yeah. I mean, I think there there are a couple. The first is that I would say that we need to have a more nuanced understanding of race in America and the ways in which America has been shaped by immigration and shaped by race to this point and that we are not necessarily heading down this this path in which America suddenly doesn't look anything like it used to. We had the exact same debate a century ago when we started to see increased um, uh, immigration from eastern and southern Europe. I say exact same. I'm being a little melodramatic. Even obviously, it was different in, in some substantial ways. But we had a debate over, you know, is this is this somehow polluting the United States, right? We had that same argument and we collectively resolved and said, no, it's not, right? So we've done that before. So I think that's a key aspect to it. I think a key aspect to it is is media consumption and the extent to which we consume media that – reflects the way in which we want to see politics, which I don't think is healthy or useful, really. Um, I think we're all sort of subject to it, and that's just, to some extent, how the world works. But I think we need to figure out a better system for people getting information that's accurate and, you know, free or (laughs) doesn't cost a lot of money and is actually uh, something that reflects a broader sense of American culture and society. Um, You know, and I think that we also just need to have more people of Different backgrounds and different age groups and different race involved in politics and decision making. I mean, you, to your to the point you're just making, I spoke with the legislator Alex Lee out in California, who works in he's in the state assembly, just won re-election there. And you know, at the time he first won, he was living in his parents' house because housing was so incredibly expensive in the Bay Area where he lives. You have Maxwell Frost who came, and, you know, the first Gen Z member of Congress gets to Washington all of a sudden he discovers he can't rent a place. <laughs> His rental application is rejected. Right, Having them in positions of power is good because what it does is it forces those sorts of issues which affect a lot of people. It doesn't affect anyone in Congress save Mr. Frost at this point in time. But it affects a lot of people. And having people there who are cognizant of that and have that lived experience I think is important.
1: Yeah. Yeah, another anecdote. Uh, a young person that that I know who had to suspend their campaign because— mm-hmm. Their roommate moved out of their apartment and they got priced out of the district that That's they were crazy. running to to represent because they couldn't afford to live alone and so yes, to your point, sort of making uh, a bunch of changes to a bunch of different places. Uh, in order to to sort of support this changing landscape of of political power, I think is is very important. Or, um, or at least having someone in the room who's cognizant of it. Yes. Right. I mean,
0: it's not even necessarily the case that we need to overhaul everything, but just to have it on people's radar screens is important.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And to to be somewhat fluent in uh, you know right. being able to to, to share experiences. Um, one one point that you just mentioned is uh, media consumption and sure. how we have a conversation about what is happening. And, and it strikes me that, yes, millennials and Gen Zers really came of age in a time where the news and media landscape looks very, very different than how it looked when, when boomers came of age. And there sure. was, um, uh, you know, a lot more uh, centralization of information and, and credible um, ways of, of disseminating sort of truth, um, especially as a, as a journalist. You know, I would love to hear your thoughts on... Uh, sort of the current media landscape, how we change uh, the conversation or how we have the conversation in order to, you know, stabilize perhaps how we, ha- we operate from sort of a shared set of facts and truth.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is a huge question, and it's not one I have a, a pat answer to, because it's, you're right, I spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, I work for the Washington Post, I write articles uh, that reflect what I believe to be accurate information about the world, you know, of course I've made mistakes, Everyone's made mistakes in the past, uh, but our information too, because it's, you know, it's a high quality publication, we charge people to see what we read, right, whereas you get Twitter accounts that spread misinformation or, or explicitly false information or, or, or present news through a lens that reflects a particular worldview uh, that are free and you know or you have blogs like Breitbart where you can go and read whatever Breitbart's take is on the world that you don't have to pay for and so you consume that I mean they're, they're all there's this this interplay of economics and accuracy that I think is challenging in the moment and I think it's been fostered to a large extent by the rise of social media social media has been a huge boom for the news industry because we get a wide variety of voices that are able to share information and off you know offer opinions on what's going on in the world it's been really really important Really, really good on net, but at the same time, it also allows people to cocoon in their own universes of how they want to see things, and you get things like QAnon that arise as a result of that. Obviously, problematic. <laughs> you know, the satanic cult of pedophiles being something that people believe is not ideal. We should not. We should not encourage that. I don't know what the future looks like, though. I don't know what it looks like to 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 increase America's interest in receiving information, because that's really what it's about. Mm-hmm. If you want to pay for the Washington Post, it's because you want a certain standard of quality in your news consumption. And if you don't care about that quality of news consumption, you're not going to pay for the Washington Post. You're just going to go and you're going to follow Jack Posobiec on Twitter or whatever it happens to be, right? I mean, there are all these other avenues for you to get information. If you don't feel like paying for it, and you're not particularly worried about the accuracy and you want it to reflect a, a worldview that you have, then you can get that. And you can get it for free, and it's engaging, and it gets you mad. and It's fun, and, you know. I mean, like there are all these aspects to it that traditional news outlets are disadvantaged, like the Post. And, and I don't know what the solution to that is. And mm-hmm. if you do, please, like let's <laughs> let's work on it.
1: Yeah, and I, I wonder how much uh, because younger folks have been at the receiving end of so much um, advertising. Right, it's just been like mm-hmm. supercharged how much potentially our own internal BS meters might have become more sophisticated um, than folks who maybe grew up in the Walter Cronkite era of this is where truth comes from and um, sort of an inherent higher level of of trust in in the information that they're receiving, whether or not millennials and Gen Zers because we are swimming in just sort of um, spin and, and bias if the next few decades look like us um, having maybe a, a more refined ability to to discern truth from fiction.
0: And there um, is research that suggests that's what's happened, right? Yeah, I've seen research that actually suggests that there isn't a big generational difference, but I've seen research which I I hmm. tend to think is accurate, which suggests that actually older Americans are worse at picking out false information from true information, in part because, you're right, they grew up in an environment where if it said, you know, x news source or x post that you would believe it because the news didn't go out of its way to mislead you. And so we saw, for example, in 2016, when you look at, there were a lot of efforts in 2016, particularly before Twitter and Facebook cracked down on the spread of misinformation. You saw a lot of people, particularly in Eastern Europe, that would stand up these websites. that were just total nonsense, just completely contrived. And there was this great reporting done by BuzzFeed. And what they discovered was in Macedonia, these kids made these websites. that were just misinformation. They said, you know, the people who... Who believe this are Trump supporters and they tend to be older Americans we tried it with you know with Democratic um, uh, candidates and it just it didn't bite like the, there just wasn't as much uptake and I think that we see these patterns that are reflected uh, in our lived experience which match the research which suggests that because younger people did come to come of age in this era when you have to be wary of the source of information you're getting that they're better at discerning things that aren't true so so we only have a few
1: few more minutes left, and, and I really want to get to uh, perhaps some some concrete stories or examples of, yeah. of where we see shifts um, or, or folks proactively engaging to guard against some of the shifts that we see um, on the horizon. Are there places or policies or ideas that you have seen start to take root that can really make sure that this transition of generational power between boomers to younger generations happens as smoothly and effectively as possible and really sets us up for um, a future in which folks are thriving?
0: Well, I think the central issue is the one that you indicated, or the one that we discussed earlier, which is just getting young people to participate Mm. more. I'm not, look, I'm Gen X. I'm not going to say what the best policies are for Millennials and Gen Z, because I can't speak to that. Millennials and Gen Z can speak to what they think the best policies are for themselves. I think that what thing we need to pay attention to is the extent to which they are represented in participating in the process, having them run for office more, having them vote more. I think that's very important to have that representation, as we said, that voice in the room. Uh, I also think that it's incumbent upon baby boomers to be aware of, the fact that they are an exceptional generation, that they have held power for so long that they may not even be aware of the extent to which they've held power. They may not be aware of the extent to which they are exceptional. And so the first part of the book really looks at that and really tries to elevate, look, this is a unique situation. You are a unique group of people and you need to be cognizant of that because that uniqueness tends to make you sort of isolated and solipsistic as a collective, not individually necessarily, and make decisions based on that. And I think it's important to elevate that this is a very different group of people in American history. And I think, you know, the entire thesis of the book, is that's a big contributor why we are why we are where we are right now in the country because this group that has held power for so long may not even be cognizant of it is now competing with a group of people that is, you know, the same size as they are for the first time in American
1: mm. history. Yeah. And, you know, Philip, it strikes me, we do often skip over poor Gen X. Yeah. Uh, what is the role that Gen X has to play in, in this moment? Or do you see it as... Um, Sort of matching in power the, the subsequent generation, millennials or, or, or Gen Z. Sort of, where does Gen X fit into all of this for all the Gen okay. X viewers right now?
0: I mean, yeah, look, like, you know, it's I'm glad I am Gen X because I can I can sort of be dismissive in a way that isn't too <laughs> off-putting, I hope. But you know, I mean essentially, you know, America's population went whoosh, big baby boom, a little bit of Gen X, millennials, right? And so there really was this dip. There just simply are fewer Gen Xers. That was that was the the emergence of Gen X marked the end of the baby boom. There was a change and in a downshift in, in the number of babies being born. There are just simply fewer of us. And so, you know, what 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 power do we hold? And also the Gen X, you know, when we talk about how big generations are, because these are sort of arbitrary, I tend to use the Pew Research Center definitions of, of the generations, but Gen X also was fewer years, so that makes the generation even smaller, uh, you know, look, wh- what do we do, we're, we're going to hold power for a little bit until the millennials surpass us, <laughs> like that just, <laughs> that's just, that's how it's going to go, both in politics and culturally, so you know, Gen X heads moment, we're starting to see, you know, we saw... Uh, the Super Bowl last year had, you know, Dr. Dre and Eminem and all these Gen X hip-hop stars and, you know, we're all like, yeah, and we realized we were old because all of a sudden it was our turn to finally have our artists be at the Super Bowl. But <laughs> that's, you know, we're going to have our moment and it's going to pass quickly and so be it.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it's pretty tough when you turn on an oldies station and you hear yeah. music that you actually grew up You're listening nirvana. to. Right, exactly. Sure. Yeah, that's, that's tough. Yeah. Um, if you could fast forward right, thirty years, forty years into the future, I think uh, the year that you that you cite is uh, twenty sixty mm-hmm. yeah um, what does what does America look like in that moment, mm-hmm. and are there sort of working backwards from that um, just important milestones or moments that that will be important as a country for us to um, sort of unite around in terms of making sort of a productive twenty sixty?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'll caveat it by using the example I use in the book, which is that in you know November 2019, you could not possibly have predicted what November 2020 would look like, right? And that was the span of 12 months. So you know I'm looking forward you know 30 plus years. So <laughs> so please future historians do not hold me to this. But you know what the Census Bureau tells us is that demographically at least, what America is going to look like is what Florida looks like now. It's going to have the same density of you know much more heavily old, much uh, much higher population of Hispanics and Asian Americans and African Americans. You know that that collectively the non-white population will be uh, large. Uh, as a relative to the overall population, uh, than the United States is now. Uh, does that mean then that America politically looks like Florida? I don't think so, because Florida's politics right now are uh, driven by a number of different things, including that the older population in Florida is very heavily white and more conservative uh, than I think the older population will be in 2060. Uh, that the, you know there are obviously unique characteristics to the Hispanic population in Florida that may not carry over broadly to the United States. But that's essentially what America is going to look like. It's going to look demographically like Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's Hard, you know. One of the experts I, with whom I spoke, is a political consultant who does a lot of work in Florida. He pointed out that over the years, there's been this anticipation: okay, Florida is getting less uh, centrally white. You know, does that mean that it starts to move to the left? Obviously, that's not what we've seen. Uh, but again, you know, does that example hold? Does does America continue to look like Florida politically, even if it looks like Florida demographically? Uh, I would suggest that it probably won't. Because I think that, in part, the Republican Party really needs to try and do a better job of reaching out to younger Americans and changing its policies to be responsive to them. And simply in part because, you know, it's a long time. And I would never want to say that I can speak definitively to what's going to happen in 35 years' time.
1: (laughs) I think a lot of us are are out of the predictions game. Uh, So, Philip, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I recommend everyone read your book. It is informative. It is funny. It is terrific. Um, Philip Bump thank you so much of course thank you
0: thanks for listening to this week's Afterwards podcast if you enjoyed this podcast listen to C-SPAN's podcast about books learn about the latest nonfiction books and best-selling authors in each episode we report on best-sellers lists and book reviews from around the country you'll also hear authors talking about their latest books and insider interviews with nonfiction book publishing industry experts